Revelation chapter 5 in your Bible, if you want to find your, your place there. By the way, this morning I talked about giving your best to the Lord, and I got to thinking about this hymn uh, this afternoon. I, I wrote it down and put it in my notes here. It says, give of your best to the Master, give of the strength of your youth, throw your soul's fresh glowing ardor, that's your energy, your zeal, into the battle for truth. Jesus has set the example. Dauntless was he, young and brave. Give him your loyal devotion. Give him the best that you have. Give of your best to the master. Give him first place in your heart. Give him first place in your service. Consecrate every part. Give, and to you will be given. God, his beloved son, gave, gratefully seeking to serve him. Give him the best that you have. Give of your best to the master. Naught else is worthy his love. He gave himself for your ransom, uh, gave up his glory above, laid down his life without murmur. You from sin's ruin to save, give him your heart's adoration, give him the best that you have. Can you say amen to that? That certainly is the way we should be living our lives, giving him the very best uh, that we have, and I trust that we will do that. We pick up our study of the Revelation in uh, chapter 5. Before we get to chapter 5, let me take a moment and just recap. In chapter 1, we saw a vision of the resurrected Christ, but it was a vision unlike any vision of the resurrected Christ we've seen before. Most of the time when we think of Jesus, we think of him meek and mild. That's how he's generally presented to us in the gospel stories. But when you get to the book of Revelation, you don't see the meek and mild Jesus. You see the Jesus who's coming with judgment. And it has a picture of him, an image of him, a, a vision of him uh, in the judgment that he's about to bring on earth. In chapters 2 and 3, you have a listing of the seven churches that are going to receive this message of the Revelation. <clears throat> and there's a description of the conditions of these seven churches. Uh, five of the seven have problems. Isn't that interesting? There's only two of the seven that aren't given some correction, uh, some chastisement. Uh, only, the other five are, are churches that have difficulties. They're having problems. Uh, they have uh, people in the church that shouldn't be there. Uh, they're causing trouble. They have doctrine that isn't right. Uh, they have conduct uh, that is illicit. And uh, the, the Lord writes through uh, this book of Revelation, and he brings correction to those churches. When you get to chapter 4, John is caught up into heaven. It's very symbolic of the rapture. What happens at the end of the church age? We're living in the church age. This is when the church is functioning. Some of our churches are where they should be. Some of them aren't where they should be, just like the seven churches of chapters 2 and 3. But what happens immediately at the end of the church age? What brings the church age to an end is the rapture of the church. We're caught up into the presence of Christ. And as John is caught up into the presence of Christ, he sees uh, God on the throne. He hears and sees the angelic creatures. And they are talking about what we just sang. Worthy is the, is the lamb that was slain. Worthy, worthy, worthy. And the 24 elders who represent the church, you and me, fall down before him and they take the crowns that they've been given from the judgment seat of Christ and they cast their crowns at the feet of the one who alone is worthy. And there's worship going on. When you see God in heaven, you're going to worship God. And, and that's what John reveals is this, 
this inner scene of the, of, the, um, of the throne room of the Almighty God where worship is being given to him. And it's symbolic. It's a reminder of the kind of worship we should be giving to him here. Are we worshiping the Lord? Are we giving him the kind of worship that we should be giving him? When we look at the Revelation, you see the kind of vocal, verbal, uh, vociferous kind of, um, of worship that's being given to the Lord over and over. As you move from chapter 4 into chapter 5 where we are tonight, we continue in the throne room. We're still there with God the Father on the throne. But in his hand, there's going to be a scroll. And they're going to look around for somebody who can take the scroll from the hand of God the Father and who can begin to unfurl it, to unroll it. But they can't find anyone who is worthy to do it. But there is one who is worthy. And the one who is worthy is Jesus Christ himself. And that's what's talked about in, in, in Revelation chapter 5. You notice verse 1. And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And understand this is a papyrus roll. It's rolled up. It's not a it's not a book form like you and I think of a book like our Bibles are that are bound in the, on the backside and you open it up in this fashion. It's something that has to be unrolled a little bit at a time and it's made out of, uh, out of papyrus. It's interesting because on these papyrus rolls you generally only wrote on one side. But this message is so full and this message is so complete that on this scroll it is written on the inside and on the back because there is so much that has to be spoken, so much that has to be shown that's on those rolls. And those, uh, that scroll is sealed. The seals were, were made with, with, uh, with soft wax. And they would take an insignia of a ring of some kind and they would press it into the wax. And you would know if somebody had broken that seal by looking at the wax, whether the wax seal had been broken. And as this scroll will be unrolled, uh, that, that seal, the first seal will be opened, and then there'll be another one. There'll be seven of them. There'll be another seal that's open, and another seal. And with each opening of a seal, there will be judgments that will come upon mankind. Because once the church is taken out of this world, what immediately follows is what we call the tribulation period. I'm going to talk about this briefly at the end of this. But uh, the discussion that's going on in America today about socialism Socialism will be the economic system of the Antichrist. And so what we watch unfolding before us, they call it democratic socialism, give it whatever name you want to call it. Socialism will be the, it will be the economic system of the tribulation period. There are lots of problems with capitalism. I understand that. And there are people who take advantage of uh, the capitalistic society in which we live, but it's not capitalism that... Uh, the Antichrist rides in on, it's uh, socialism that he rides in on. So the next time you see AOC or you see Ilhan Omar or you see, uh, uh, who's the Speaker of the House, uh, uh, Nancy Pelosi, or you see some of the others pushing a socialist agenda, hey, they're playing right into the end times. They're playing right into what will have to occur for the Antichrist to rise to power. We're not there yet. I'm way ahead of myself now. 
That we're back in the throne room. God the Father has this scroll in his hand. It's got seals on it that have to be broken so that the judgments can be unfolded one after another. And it's a full document. I mean, there's, guts of, there's lots of things that we're supposed to know because it's written on the front and on the back. Then I saw a strong angel, verses 2 and 3, proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or even to look at it. Can you imagine? He he begins looking around. These creatures begin looking around um, to see who might be worthy to take the scroll out of the hand of God the Father and to break the first seal and then to break the second seal and the third seal. And There isn't anybody that's in heaven, that is humans, you and me, that are in heaven or even anybody under the earth that's worthy. But don't be concerned. There is somebody. Verse 4, so I wept much, John says. I wept much. Where? Who is going to open this scroll? We want to know what's on this scroll. We want to know what's coming next. I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. And it's interesting that when he says he wept much, it's in the imperfect tense of the Greek language. It means he just kept on crying. You ever, you ever cried and you just couldn't quit crying? Okay, so I'm the only one that does that. There, there are moments when I, when I just, my emotions get turned upside down and I just, I, the, the tears just come and I can't stop them. Uh, that's what John is talking about here. This imperfect tense, he wept. It wasn't like he wept for a few moments and he quit. Oh, it's going to be okay. He just goes on weeping. He goes on weeping. There's nobody to take this scroll out of the hand of the Father and show us what's on it. Verse 5, but one of the elders said to me, do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. Don't you love the description? All three of those are descriptions, prophetic descriptions of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. From, from which family line does Jesus come? He's the root of David. And how did Jesus prevail? He prevailed by conquering death and conquering Satan so that the only one who was worthy to take from the Father's hand this scroll with seven seals is the one who has prevailed, Jesus Christ himself. Uh, These are beautiful prophetic descriptions uh, of Jesus. And he's going to take the scroll from the Father, verse 6, and I looked. And behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain. Oh, I love that description. Aren't you thankful for the lamb that's been slain? They had all of those years, hundreds and hundreds of years that they brought the lambs, the physical uh, lambs, the ones that uh, are out in the field that shepherds had to watch over. Hundreds and thousands of those lambs were sacrificed over and over again. They were brought to the, to the tabernacle and to the temple, and the lives of those a- animals were taken. Their blood was shed, but Jesus came once for all forever. The perfect, sinless lamb of God, and he was slain. 
Notice his description. He has seven horns. That's an unusual description. Horns were a symbol of power. Seven is the number of perfection. He is the perfectly powerful one. He has seven eyes. Uh, He can see. He's omniscient. He can see everything. He's perfectly omniscient, which are the seven spirits of God. And we've already looked at this in the past. The seven spirits of God is the description of the seven works of the Holy Spirit. So that what you have here is the God the Father on the throne with the scroll in his hand. You have God the Son who has prevailed to take that scroll out of the hand of the Father. And you have the Holy Spirit, the, the one who is described here as the seven spirits of God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. God is a trinity. Uh, three in one and one in three. Can you understand that? Can I understand that? No, not in totality. Can I explain that? Not in totality. But that's what the, description, that's what the Bible describes uh, uh, God as being, a trinity. And here we find them all together. It's interesting that this uh, title for Jesus, a lamb, he stood. You ever seen a lamb stand? You don't see a lamb stand. I mean, up on two feet, you don't see a lamb stand, do you? Stood a lamb as though he had been slain. He stood up from being slain. You ever seen a lamb get up that was slain? <laughs> Are y'all with me? Have y'all been to one of those uh, Brazilian steakhouses? And you got a card that's red on one side and green on the other. And they got all these different kinds of meat and uh, if you want meat, you put, turn it green, and they'll all come by and cut it off and put it on your plate. Now, we only, we've only done this a couple of times for special occasions because it's like $40 a plate. But, you know, you get any kind of beef you want, and you get, uh, you get lamb. You ever had lamb? Do you know what? I've never seen a lamb. In any of those, those two or three times that I've been in a Brazilian steakhouse, I've never seen a lamb get off that skewer. He doesn't do it. But this lamb who was slain got up. This lamb that was slain is alive. And he's called the lamb in the Revelation 28 times because he is the lamb of God. What did John say about him when he saw him coming along the banks of the the Jordan River? Behold the lamb of God that takes away uh, the sin of the world. You know, when we get to heaven, we're going to recognize him. Just like we're looking at this heavenly scene in the throne room of the Almighty, where God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are all presented as three distinct personalities all together in one place. They all recognize John, recognize Jesus, recognize the resurrected Christ. Do you realize that when you step across to the other side, you will recognize the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world? You will know who he is. And you will understand him and his great power. Those seven horns are a metaphor for his great power. Verse 7, then he came and took the scroll out of the hand, out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Now, when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures, we saw them last time in chapter 4, these four angelic creatures and the 24 elders. Who do the 24 elders represent? By the robes that they wear, by the crowns that they wear, by the number 24 itself. We know that these represent you and me, all of the saints of all of the, of all the church age. So what happens when the saints of all the church age, 
see Jesus taking the scroll from the Father's hand, what happens? The 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. They fall down in worship to the one who alone is worthy. We just sang it. He alone is worthy. He alone is worthy. We're going to spend a lot of time on our faces in heaven, I think. We won't spend all of our time on our faces in heaven, but I think we're going to spend, and I say on our face, I mean on our knees, bowed before him. I don't mean literally standing on our face, though some of us look like we've been standing on our faces. We're going, to be, we're going to be prostrate before him, I think, on a lot of occasions. And here, these 24 elders, representative of you and me, are, are falling down before the Lord. You notice they have harps? Uh, these uh, are instruments that are familiar in, in uh, the Scripture. Uh, David played a harp, didn't he? Remember when Saul, the evil spirit, would come on Saul? He would send for David, and David would come, and David would play his harp. And what would happen? It would drive the evil spirit. Did you know that music can draw evil spirits or it can drive evil spirits? Let me say it again. (laughs) Did you know that music can draw evil spirits or it can drive evil spirits away? Music has power in that sense. And here they each have harps. We're going to be singing in heaven. We, the saints, are going to be singing. The Scripture never says angels sing. But it says that we, the saints, will be singing in heaven. It says that these 24 elders that represent you and me have golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Please be careful here. This is not the Catholic idea of praying to the saints. It never says here that we're to pray to the saints. It never says here that these 24 elders presented these bowls of, uh, of uh, the prayers of the saints, the fragrance of the prayers of the saints to God. Never says that. As a matter of fact, in other places in the Revelation, it, it specifically says we don't pray to the saints. If you go at St. Mary's Hospital, or you used to go, I don't know if it's still there or not. I hadn't been in that back hallway in so long, I don't know. But you go in the back hallway, the stairs in the old part, the back hallway, you go up the first level, you get to the first landing, and there's the picture of Mary. You don't get to Jesus till you get to the second level. Do you, do you know the symbolism of what they're telling you? You've you got to go through Mary to get to Jesus. You don't go through any saint. Now, listen, I'm St. David, and you're St. John, and you're St. Mary, and you, you, we're all saints to the Lord. We don't pray to the saints. We don't, there's one mediator between God and man. 1 Timothy 2.5, there's one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. Amen. So here are these golden bowls. These may be from the martyred saints. A little bit later in chapter 6, verse 11, it talks about the martyred saints that are in heaven who are praying for God's judgment to fall on those who have martyred them. And it may be their prayers that are in these bowls But it never says we pray to the saints. It never says that these 24 elders are presenting these prayers to God. It just says they have this harp in one hand and they have these golden bowls with the incense, this smelling, sweet-smelling aroma of of the saints' prayers. And by the way, isn't that a beautiful symbolism? What does God think about our prayers? It's like a sweet-smelling savor to him. God loves for his people to talk to him. 
Don't you like it when your wife comes in and she just talks to you? Maybe that wasn't such a good illustration. <laughs> Don't you just love it when your husband comes in and he, he talks to you? you know, maybe not so much when it comes to your husband and wife because you get on each other's nerves, but you never get on the Lord's nerves. The prayers of any of us, as insignificant or weak as we may think them to be, are a sweet-smelling aroma to the God of heaven. And it never says that the 24 elders have any role in answering these prayers. God never dispatches the saints of heaven to answer prayer. He never does that. But he's using this incredible symbolism of the music and the incredible symbolism of prayers and the beauty and the, the, the uh, magnificence of prayers that are prayed. Verses 9 and 10, and they sang a new song. I like that. They sang a new song. None of the songs that you and I sing today probably will be the songs we sing then. Some of you thought the hymns we've been singing for the last uh, couple of hundred years of the church were the ones, I, I don't think we'll probably be singing Amazing Grace when we get over there. It's going to be new songs. They sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood. I love that. The word redeemed means to buy back. He went into the slave market of sin and he paid the price for our souls. And what was the price? His shed blood, the sacrifice of himself, and he redeemed us. He took us out of the slave market of sin and he made us his children. And notice, he redeemed us out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Why are we involved in missions? Because God wants people to praise him from every tribe and every tongue and every people and every nation. And they've made us kings and priests to our God. You know what that means? It means you and I, the saints of God, <clears throat> are going to be ruling with Christ. We're going to be ruling with Christ. Isn't that incredible? I don't know what all of that means. I don't know what all of that means, that we're going to rule with Christ. But I know enough to know that that's going to be awesome. You say, I... You know, people sometimes say to me, they say, I, I don't want to go to heaven. I say, Why don't, what, I don't want to float on a crowd, the cloud strumming a harp for all of eternity. Listen, neither, I, neither do I. That sounds like hell to me. <laughs> We're not going to be floating on a cloud playing a harp for the rest of eternity. We're going to be serving the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Hey, some of you that hadn't been able to carry a tune in a bucket, let alone the bucket, you're going to be able to sing and blend your voices with the saints of God. And there's going to be work that has to be done in the millennial reign. And who knows what the new heaven and the new earth will be like? Hey, it's a new heaven and a new earth. What was supposed to be this heaven and this earth that got corrupted by sin won't be corrupted that way in the new heaven and the new earth. So maybe every golf course will be perfectly manicured. <laughs> and no river have anything like the Ohio River has running in it. Don't eat the fish out of the Ohio River unless you like to glow at night. <laughs> Verses 9 and 10. 
They sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll. You've redeemed us to God by, by your, your blood out of every tribe, tongue, nation, and people. You've made us kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. This is a multilingual, multinational terminology that's used elsewhere in the Revelation. You'll see it again and again. It just speaks of the scope of God's love. God doesn't just love Americans. God loves every nation, the people of every nation. Verse 11, then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. In other words, it's an incalculable number. That little phrase, 10,000 times 10,000, it, it gives us our English word myriad, there's a myriad of the angelic host. Remember what I said? The angels don't sing. They say. Now, look, I don't like rap music, but it may well be that what the angels do is rap throughout eternity. <laughs> so just get used to it. 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands, an inestimable number, number of these living creatures are giving praise to God, saying over and over, myriads of them everywhere you look, they're, they're there. Verse 12, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And did you count how many of those qualities there are? There's seven. What is seven? Seven's the number of perfection. It's the number of completion. It's the number that demonstrates that he is deserving of all praise and all worship. This is a praise-filled band of the saints and the angels who were saying over and over, maybe wrapping it, Worthy is the lamb that was, who was slain to receive power and riches, so forth and so on. It's very similar to what David says in 1 Chronicles chapter 29, verse 11. Might want to write that verse down and look at it. Very similar to what David says, 1 Chronicles 29, 11, verse 13. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea. Now, this is every creature. This is not just the angelic host. This is not just the saints. This is every creature on the earth and under the earth, and such as are in the sea and all that are in them, I heard saying, blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and, the, and to the Lamb forever and ever. Do you know what the earth is doing today, what the creatures of the earth are doing today? Romans chapter 8 says that they are groaning. You know why they're groaning? For the same reason you're groaning. They're all living under the curse of sin. But there's coming a day when the curse of sin will be removed. And when the curse of sin is removed, then all of these creatures, all of God's creation will be giving him praise. I don't know how, you know, the lions and the tigers and the lambs and the dogs and the cats. Will there be cats in heaven? Surely not. Surely not. I'm talking about the domestic kind of cats. Surely there's none of those in heaven. Surely. I don't know how all the animals and all the creatures of the sea give praise, but there's some fashion in which they say and they give glory to God, power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Verse 13, and every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth 
And as such as are in the sea and all that are in them, I heard saying, blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne. Verse 14, then, then, all this praise is going on. Then the four living creatures say, amen, amen. I like that word. I would love for our church to learn to say amen and to say it out loud. You know, when there's something that's preached that touches your heart or moves your, your, your heart or there's something that convicts you or should convict you, I love when people say amen. And here, the angelic creatures do what? They say amen. What does amen mean? It means so be it. So be it. This is, this is right. This is deserving. This is right. You are, he is deserving of all this. He is deserving of this. And then what happens? The 24 elders, they did this in chapter 4. The 24 elders fell down. Who were the 24 elders' representative? Of you and me. The 24 elders fell down and they worshiped him who lives forever and forever. Wow. And we find ourselves in the throne room of God. But we have to move quickly into chapter 6, just a couple of verses out of chapter 6, and I'll stop. Because... In chapter 1, you see Jesus, the vision of Jesus who's coming in judgment. It's not the meek and mild Jesus. It's the Jesus is coming in judgment. 2 and 3, you see the condition of the churches and how they need to repent and come back to God and get right with the Lord and do the right things. Chapter 4, you see the rapture. The saint is caught up into heaven, and he's given a vision into the throne room of God, and God the Father has this scroll in his hand, and nobody is found worthy to take it out of his hand except for one, the one who has prevailed. His name is Jesus, the Lamb of God. And the Lamb of God takes it out of his hand, and the Lamb of God will break the first seal. And that's what chapter 6 picks up. This chapter takes, up from the, takes us from the majestic scenes of heaven. Chapter 6 takes us from the majestic scenes of heaven to the judgment of God on earth. We, we move from John being in this heavenly scene where he sees the exalted God, the exalted Christ, the exalted Holy Spirit, and now we're plunged right back down to the earth to, to see what's going to be the outcome <clears throat> of this scroll that's going to be unfurled. There are the seal judgments. Then there are the trumpet judgments. Then there are the vile judgments, V-I-A-L, the vile judgments that are poured out onto mankind, and judgment is coming because what follows the rapture of the church is seven years of hell on earth called the tribulation. Notice that chapter 6, verse 1. Now I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a voice like thunder, come and see. Hear what he says? There was only one who was worthy to open that, uh, uh, to unfurl that, uh, that scroll, break that seal, those seals. Jesus breaks the very first seal, and John, he's, they, they tell John, come and look. Now, come on, watch. It's like they're saying, well, come over here to the edge and let's look back down here to what's about to occur. Pay attention. Verse 2, and I looked, and behold, a white horse. By the way, this is the first of the, what's commonly called the four horsemen of the apocalypse. We'll read about them over the coming couple of weeks. 
the four horsemen of the apocalypse, but this is the first of the four horsemen of the apocalypse. He comes on a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow. Notice what he doesn't have. He doesn't have any arrows because he didn't conquer by power. On it, he has a bow and a crown. This is not the diadem that Jesus wears. This is a crown like you and I have. He's, he's, some, he's a man like you and I. And a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. And do you know who this one was riding on this white horse, the first of the four horsemen of the apocalypse? His name is the Antichrist. The Antichrist comes to power. He rides in on this white horse. What's a white horse? It's a symbol of peace. He seemingly doesn't have arrows. He has a bow, but he has no arrows. He seemingly comes in peace. And yet we all know if we've read this revelation, we all know that ultimately he's not a man of peace. He's a deceiver. And he comes to bring relative peace on earth, to set himself up to be ruled and to, to reign. I want you to look with me for a moment. Second Thessalonians. Notice what happens here. 2 Thessalonians, and we're going to stop at this verse, by the way. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Verse 3. 2 Thessalonians 2, 3. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come. What day? The day of Christ in verse 2 the day when Jesus comes back to establish his kingdom. But what takes place before the, the Lord comes to establish his kingdom? Seven years of tribulation. Let nobody deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first. There's a falling away today, isn't there? A falling away comes first. And the man of sin, that's the one coming on the white horse with a bow but no arrows, the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshiped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. And the Antichrist comes as a problem solver. And I believe he comes on the back of socialism. You do understand that the reason why they want to defund the police and get rid of the police is so that they can federalize everything. And it comes from the federal government down, not the local people governing themselves amongst themselves. You do understand that socialism wants to tear down all of the statues and all of the images of the past. They want to erase the past so that they can write a new future. You do understand. You do understand that they want to take money away from the rich, they say, and they want to give it to the poor, but what they really want to do is take money out of people's pockets, and the rich who are in the controlling class are the ones who have the money, and everybody else has no money. Just ask Venezuela. And it all comes across to the millennial generation and Generation Z as the most compassionate thing we could do is to spread the wealth out so that everybody had equality and nobody had to do without. 
But you understand that that entire system comes from a man named Marx. And that entire system has never worked. And you can't use the Scandinavian countries because those are welfare states. They're not socialist states. And socialism will be the tool of Satan. It'll be the tool, this white horse, this uh, first horseman of the apocalypse, the antichrist, the son of perdition who comes to bring peace. What do you think he's going to do? I'm going to make your life better. And so we spend $3.5 trillion that we do not have and add to the indebtedness of the nation. We federalize as many projects and as many of the programs and as many of the organizations as we can because ultimately the Antichrist, if he's going to rule, has got to have socialism in order to have power. Capitalism won't let him rule. Why does America not get mentioned in prophecy? Because America ceases to exist at some point as the power that it is today. And America is moving in that direction every single day. And some who name the name of Christ are helping the process along. And so you see AOC wear her white dress that says tax the rich to a $30,000 a plate dinner. Do you see the hypocrisy? Or Ilhan Omar? Or Nancy Pelosi? Who wants to tie the infrastructure bill to a reconciliation bill and make it a $5 trillion expenditure. Because socialism wants to take it away from you, wants to federalize everything and set up a system where the Antichrist has, he can ride into power and he can have control over the money and the poor get poor and that elite class gets richer and everybody else struggles. You do understand in Venezuela, you can't even get a roll of toilet paper. But we have a lady that used to come to our church. She was a medical doctor in Venezuela. She moved to Florida. She left Venezuela. She couldn't get any of the necessary supplies to even be able to take care of the people who were sick that were coming to see her. Socialism doesn't work. Democratic socialism doesn't work. Capitalism isn't perfect, but what you're watching is the unfolding of prophecy. As the falling away occurs, the churches get weaker and weaker and weaker. They no longer speak. Listen, we can't tell the difference between a man and a woman anymore. You can't call them he's or she's. You got to call them them or they. Birthing people. Birthing people. Because they have to silence believers. They have to silence Christians. What do you think is going on in the government right now? Let's shut the mouths of as many Christians as we can. And Joe Biden is at the top of the, he's at the, top of the scale. Amen. 
And this is not political. This is biblical. And there's a lot of Republicans I don't like either. But this is a part of the prophecy. Coming on the white horse, supposedly in peace, going to solve all the problems, going to make sure everybody has everything that they need. Nobody will do without. Everybody will have equal access to every institution. As long as they would like to have access to that institution, you'll have access. Everything gets federalized. Thank God we'll be gone. By the time that day comes. So now I'm mad at you, preacher. You need somebody to make you mad to make you think. <laughs> 